Let's get ready to roll. Lead Like a Lady features amazing women at the top of their game who know what it's like to be the only woman in the room. They're here to share their stories, inspire greatness, and provide advice to all the women coming up behind them. Now, here's your host, Army veteran and retired FBI assistant special agent in charge, Gina L. Osborne. Welcome to Lead Like a Lady. I'm your host, Gina L. Osborne. On today's show, we're talking about invincibility, being too powerful to be defeated or overcome. Let me ask you this question. Are you invincible? Let's take a little bit of inventory here. What areas in your life are you too powerful to be defeated? And when are you not? When I work with my coaching clients, I often listen for reasons why people can't achieve their goals. After I clean out all the clutter, I'm too busy, the dog ate my homework. The reason people fail usually falls into a few categories. Fear, lack of discipline, we simply don't believe in ourselves or we can't get over or learn from our past mistakes. I wanna focus on the last reason in this episode. Why do we keep book on ourselves for every past mistake or bad decision we've ever made? Whenever we're feeling down and we trot out that list, it shames us to the point we lose confidence, throw our hands up, and just quit trying. If we fear failure or even fear success, any particular item on our mistake list becomes a convenient excuse why we should remain on the sidelines as opposed to playing in the game we call life. I'm here to tell you, your past mistakes do not define you. Don't let them get in your way of achieving your goals. Our guest today is the perfect example of invincibility. She didn't allow herself to be defeated or overcome by past decisions or mistakes. And like the other remarkable leaders I've had on this show, her authenticity and honesty in sharing her story will make you both proud and inspired. Kathy Lanier is the Senior Vice President of Security for the National Football League. She is responsible for safeguarding 32 NFL teams and their venues. That's impressive in and of itself, but by age 39, she became the first female police chief in our nation's capital for the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department from 2007 to 2016, the longest sitting chief for that department. Chief Lanier's street smart tactics focusing on community empowerment resulted in a 53% decrease in homicides in the murder capital of the nation. She also led the response to the Washington Navy Yard mass shooting in 2013. You know, I love a good underdog story. So sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired. Welcome to the show, Chief. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Gina. Chief, your story resonates with me and a lot of people because you beat the odds to make it to the top of the male-dominated field of law enforcement. To put it simply, you went from a teenage mom 
to the chief of police of a major police department. Will you share with us how your story started? Oh, you mean way, way back story, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please. Kind of a non-traditional start to a law enforcement career, I guess. I guess I'll start back my personal story. My parents were married right out of high school. My father was a firefighter. My mother worked as a secretary in the federal government. Married at 19, they had three kids. I was the last of the three, so the baby and the only girl. When I was born, much like today, uh, this firefighter and secretary salary was not enough to pay for childcare for three kids. So my mother took a leave of absence from work to stay at home uh, and raise the kids until I was old enough, the youngest was old enough to kind of be a latchkey kid. So life was great. I mean, uh, my mom was with us all the time and everything was wonderful until uh, I was about two and a half years old. And we had gone to the beach for the weekend. And when we came home from the beach, uh, my father was gone. So uh, he had left, taken the car and all his belongings. And my mother then found herself a, a single mother with no job and three kids for about the next 10 years. Public assistance, welfare, a lot of help from the church. But again, for me as a kid, I had my mother with me all the time. So it was great. I mean, I, you don't realize when you're that young, you know, you don't have a lot of money, you don't have things, don't have a car, but, but my mother was always there with us. So it was a great childhood for me. I loved having my mother with me. So, you know, soccer practice and majorette practice and basketball practice, whatever I did, she was always there to, to be with me. And then that all changed when I was 13. So back in those days, you went from elementary school to junior high school uh, and seventh grade was junior high school. And and we were also still busing back in those days. So they were trying to integrate, uh, racially integrate the schools. So they bus kids from one neighborhood to another neighborhood to try and integrate those schools racially. So when I went to to junior high school, my first year, my mother had that was her first year back at work. I was 13, the youngest of the three. We were old enough to be at home for a few hours after after school, you know, without a parent there uh, before she got home. The big thing for me was, you know, I was transitioning to becoming a teenager. I was going to a new school. This is a school that was a really tough school. I had a tough time uh, transitioning in there. And at the same time, I lost my best friend. You know, my mother went back to work. My person was there for me all the time. Now was was at work. So kind of a, a crucial time for me. And the school that we went to is right on the border of the District of Columbia, right on the D.C. border. Anybody that knows anything about most major cities, but certainly Washington, D.C., every everything was about the neighborhood you come from. So when our bus pulled in the morning for school, we would promptly get jumped by the local kids as soon as we got off the bus because we were the, you know, not from the neighborhood. You know, when I started there my first year in seventh grade, I had come from the talented and gifted program. From the fourth grade on, I was a straight A student. I love school. Uh, when I get to this this junior high school now, I'm getting jumped every day when I got off the bus. I I start skipping school. So I, you know, my mom would get on her bus at the end of the street in the morning at 7 a.m., and then my bus would pick me up on the other end of the street at 7:15. So we'd both walk to our bus stops in the morning together. And then after she would get on her bus and drive by, I would kind of wave to her. She went off to work and then I would hop in a car with one of my friends and skip school for the day. Because I, I really just didn't want to go through that, you know, that experience every single morning uh, when we got off the bus at school. So I, I very quickly realized that once you start skipping school or skipping classes, then you get behind. My first period class was algebra. 
<laughs> so once you start skipping classes and getting behind, it becomes very, very difficult to catch up. What would you do while you were skipping school? There's not a lot to do when you're skipping school, but get in trouble. So I was hanging out with the wrong people, other people that weren't in school that were much older than I was, you know, not doing anything that I should be doing. And then by the eighth grade, I went from this talented and gifted program all the way through school, straight A student to failing uh, nearly all my classes based on attendance. I was averaging about 19 days a quarter that I was absent from school. My mother working full time uh, was never even notified by the school. So she didn't know until I actually started failing classes that I was not going to school. I decided when I was 14, almost 15, um, I had met a much older boyfriend. We were, you know, sneaking out and dating and during the day when I was supposed to be at school. And then I, by the time I was in ninth grade, I was pregnant and I ended up dropping out of school um, and running away from home. So I, at, at the age of 15, I got married to my husband who was much older and having my son. So I found myself at 15 as a single mom with a ninth grade education. So it was not the most promising start for me, but that, that, that was my start. Where did you find the courage or the tenacity or the confidence or the inspiration to pull yourself out of something like that? I'm extremely fortunate that I had a very good mom. And I think the foundation that she built with us when we were kids before I became a teenager and lost my mind, uh, that foundation my mother built was really important. Once I became a mother, I'll never forget, my son was about three weeks old and his crib used to be at the bottom of my bed in my little small apartment. And he was such a good baby. He would wake up in the morning and he wouldn't cry or anything. He would just lay there and look at me. And I remember one morning waking up and looking at the foot of my bed at the crib and seeing him just staring at me. And I thought, it just hit me. I'm a mother and I'm responsible for everything. I'm responsible for his life. And I think that's really what changed everything for me. I, I realized that I didn't want him to grow up with the circumstances that I grew up with. And I didn't want him to grow up, you know, going to schools that were the schools I went to, you know, it was difficult to go to school and learn and get an education. And I wanted him to have a better chance. So it was, I think the maternal instinct that kicked in that day that from that minute on, everything I did, every decision I made was about making sure he had opportunities and he had a better chance than I did growing up. But I, I attribute that largely to my my mother's foundation that she built and just being such a wonderful, strong woman. And, and then, you know, the maternal instinct that really hard to explain unless you have children. What led you to the DC Metropolitan Police Department? I ended up leaving my husband and moving back to my, in with my mother when I was 17. I got a job working as a secretary. A friend of mine got me a job working as a secretary. I didn't know how to type at the time. <laughs> my mother was a secretary. So I asked my employer when they hired me if they let me bring the typewriter home and practice typing. So my mother literally taught me how to type on the kitchen table. So I worked as a secretary uh, during the day, and then I was a waitress in the evening. I was doing that for about three years, and I got my GED, and I started taking some college courses at the local community college. I was taking one class a semester. That's all I could afford. So I just figured it's going to take me 30 years to get a degree, but, but I was at least getting a start. But when I, I really wanted to put my son in, in private school so he didn't have to go to the schools that I went to. And so I was trying to save some money working that second job. When I was 22 years old, I saw a ad in the Washington Post for the Metropolitan Police Department. 
the Metropolitan Police Department had a huge ad. They were taking a thousand new applicants. They were going to run a, a hiring exam on that Saturday. And what caught my eye in the ad was they, they offered tuition reimbursement. And I knew that if I didn't go back to school and get an education, I was never going to make any more than secretary salary. And and I wanted to do, to do more. So I went down that to Washington, D.C. that Saturday morning and stood in line with a thousand people and took the, the entry exam for the Metropolitan Police Department. And I ended up coming out, I think, 60 on that test. And within three months, I was hired. Uh, so I went to work for MPD when I was 23. Did you ever think at that time that you'd go on to become the chief? <laughs> oh, my God, no. <laughs> I didn't even know how long I would would be a police officer. When I went in the academy, you know, I have brothers that are in public safety, one firefighter, one police officer. So I wasn't afraid of going into the police department at, at the time, but I just thought I'd do it until I got my degree and then I'd go do something else. But once I got in the academy and I got out on the street, I just knew from the minute I hit the street that I loved that job and I, I didn't want to do anything else. So I, I really didn't know how long I'd be there. I certainly didn't go into it thinking that I'd be the chief for sure. Chief, I've heard you speak and you talk about how to get past the missteps that we make in life. You say it's all about attitude and effort. What do you mean by that? In in hindsight, I've thought about this several times in my life. You know, I I think really what got me through, you know, I, I finished going to school and I took promotional exam after promotional exam so I could move up in the police department largely because I wanted to make more money so I could put put it into my son's education and I, I kept going to school myself so I could, you know, be available to take more promotional opportunities and make more money so I could put my son in private school. So those were the things that were driving me. But really what allowed me to do that was just the right, you just got to have the right attitude and you got to put a lot of effort in. I mean, you know, when I was going to school, you know, I worked, uh, I volunteered for permanent evenings and I went to school during the day and then I had to go to court also. So I was half the time in school on my days off and in court during the day. Um, and then when I got into my uh, Johns Hopkins and I was doing my bachelor's and master's programs, we were allowed to go to school on our days off. So every single Friday and Saturday, eight hours a day for four years, I was in school every Friday and Saturday at Hopkins doing my bachelor's and my master's program. So I didn't have a day off for four years. So it's it was a lot of work. It was a lot of hard work. In the same time, I was taking promotional exams and moving up to the ranks, but I knew what I needed to do. And I, I had the right attitude. My attitude was, this is the goal here is to get my son into private school, get him to graduate, get him off to college. And and that's what I did. So it's all about keeping your eye on the, on the ultimate prize and having that right attitude. And then you just got to put the effort in. I used to say to people, you know, I only had a ninth grade education. I went back, got my GED, and then I went back to college, but I struggled. I had to really work hard in college because I didn't have 10th, 11th, and 12th grade like everybody else. And what I learned was that I might not be smarter than the guy next to me. When I took these promotional exams, I might not be as smart as the guy next to me I'm competing with, but I can outwork all of them. Um, so whereas when I took a promotional exam, I committed to two hours a day, every day of studying, no matter how long my day was, and four hours a day, every day off I had studying for that promotional exam. So I could outstudy and outwork everybody. I might not be as smart as they are, but I can outwork them. And that's been true for me my whole life. The things that are a little bit harder, you just work harder for them. What do you say to people who have excuses as to why they can't do something, especially when it comes to achieving a goal? You can't be an excuse person. There are people that just make excuses for anything and everything that goes wrong or happens in life. And you just can't ever make excuses. And so I try and focus on not ever making excuses for myself. And I don't, I don't like to listen to people make excuses. 
and it's a mindset. You got to get yourself out of it. You kind of start as a child learning how to make excuses, right? So everybody, everybody does it. We, this is what, what we do when we're kids. But when you become an adult, you've got to learn to not be an excuse person. There's no excuse. You gotta, you've got to be committed. And I don't think there's anything that a person can't do if they really worked hard at it and really tried. Um, there's all kinds of examples of people out there like that. I just, just can't be an excuse person. I think what slows people down is the negative self-talk. More often than not, it's not something external that's holding us back. It's all in our heads. It seems like we're not giving ourselves the grace that we need to push through it or get past it. You know, it helps me, though. I think, you know, I've succeeded at some things, but I failed at an awful lot of things also. We could do another whole show about that. But, you know, when you fail at something, you just you don't get it right. You just own it pick up and move on. You know, you make mistakes and you fail at something that's all part of learning. So you just pick it up and move on. Don't, don't get caught up in it. Oh, I believe that too. But so many people just can't seem to get past the mistakes that they've made in their lives. And it almost becomes part of their identity. I look at this as a form of self-sabotage or even shame that actually holds people back from their greatest potential. Oh, absolutely. I did this myself for many, many years. And in fact, I remember when I was studying for promotional exam, one of my mentors who was ultimately the chief of police in Washington, D.C., my predecessor, he says, what are you so worried about? Why are you so concerned about taking this promotional exam? I said, look, you know, I, I didn't graduate from high school like all these other guys did. I don't, you know, I'm not, I, I'm afraid I'm not going to be good enough for this position. And it was, it was that constant beating myself up. I'm not you know, I'm not as good as they are. I can't do it. And, you know, he said, you got to stop with all of that negative self-talk. It really is 99% of the time, especially with women, it is, we are our own worst enemy. We hold ourselves back because we lack the confidence. We lack the, you know, the ability to, to push ourselves a little bit. And I did that for many years. While you were going through that self-doubt, I'm sure it didn't help that there were so few female officers back then. That had to add to your challenges. It was, it was tough internally. There were some challenges, you know, back in those days, the department was very senior. The agency itself had a very bad reputation. There was a lot of corruption in the department at the time. Sexual harassment was rampant. I mean, there was, I endured a terrible sexual harassment over a period of time when I, when I first made Sergeant and was sent to, um, it's a pretty tough area. And, you know, I, I was, I mean, literally terrified and, you know, of losing my job, but this harassment was just so uh, pervasive. And uh, so I filed, ended up filing a sexual harassment complaint. And again, I was terrified that I was going to lose my job, that something, you know, people wouldn't back me up on the street because it was predominantly male department, but was surprised when all of the men that were witnessed, that had witnessed what had been going on with not just my harassment case, but with this harassment of other women actually stood up and, and told the truth. And, you know, as a result that, sexual harassment case caused a lot of change in the police department. So it was, you know, sometimes you just got to take calculated risk. You know, the bottom line is, is you're going to be damned if you do or damned if you don't. You're always better, better for doing, as my grandmother used to say. You know, I needed my job. I didn't want to lose my job and I didn't want to have uh, the person who was harassing me have that type of control. And so I filed the complaint and it ended up working out, but it was a really tough year, year and a half of period of my career, but things did change after that. It takes a lot of courage to make that type of complaint 
people who are currently in that same situation that you were in, they're afraid that the stigma that comes with standing up and making it known that this is not acceptable keeps them from doing something about their situation. So did anything change for you after you went through that? You know, I grew up in a house with two older brothers, <laughs> one cop, one firefighter, right? So I even, I say, you know, people always say, when you go to the police department, do you know how to fight? I'm like, no, but I sure can take a punch. <laughs> um, I used to think, you know, because I grew up in that environment, I never, ever wanted to use my gender in the in the department or anything. And there was a lot of people who did do that, that would, would use their gender to women who would say, oh, you know, I'd like to have weekends off and you know, I'd like to work in a, in an office space as opposed to being, you know, out on the street. And, and you know, I made a commitment to myself, look, I came here to be a police officer. This is what I want to do. I didn't take any administrative jobs when they try to shuffle all the female officers. They try to put us all on the station and have us working at administrative jobs, doing assistant work for command staff. And I was like, look, I came here to be a cop. I want to be a cop. So I, I made a conscious effort to stay in operational positions on the street, you know, doing my job to earn that respect of my peers. And then I found ways later on in my career to use my gender in a positive way, you know, kind of as peer pressure. So um, instead of saying, oh, you know, I'm a woman, I want to, I want a different assignment or I want different treatment. I would use it kind of in the opposite way where when I was in special operations division, uh, I was the first female to, to run the special operations division. This is all of your big testosterone driven units, you know, this is your SWAT team and your bomb squad and the civil disturbance unit, all of the, the big specialized units. And I was requiring all of our division to go through hazmat training. So we had to go down to Anniston, Alabama and go through the live agent school, you know, live sarin VX gas. And, and so I said, you know, we're, this is going to be mandatory for all of us, but this was post nine 11. We were developing our homeland security capabilities. I said, everybody in special ops has to go. So I signed up to go in the first class. I said, I'm going to go first because there was some pushback and and some of my SWAT team guys threatening to file a, a grievance that we you know you can't make us go to this hazmat school it should has to be optional so I went to the first class and when I came back and I went to roll call I said you know like, you know there was seven of us who went to the first class down in Anderson you know we all came back with our certificate we all passed the class and I said look I did it and I'm just a girl I think you guys could get through this without any problems and boy you've never seen a guy sign up so fast to go to that class after that <laughs> so if you're going to use your gender, use it in a way that's um, that doesn't make you uh, look weak, but makes you look strong. The art of persuasion. I love that. It sounds like you lead by example. What other leadership characteristics do you have that helped you lead men in male-dominated fields? Look, for me, it's um, and I and and this is the way I view others as well. I, the thing that means the most to me for a leader when I if I'm all the mentors that I had, I'm following somebody. I'm, I'm looking at people to how to people that I respect and admire for how they how they lead and, and how they they do their job. It always to me, it's always the people that are just genuine, you know, just authentic, genuine. Be yourself. I could be more polished, I guess, when I was the chief and do things you know, a little differently. But I, what I think people will tell you about me is is what you see is what you get. I am what I am. I am very straightforward with people. I'm very honest with people. I don't put on any airs. I don't try and dress a certain way or do things a certain way. What you see is what you get. That's kind of the way I, I think I, I prefer working for someone and the way I prefer to work when I'm leading uh, others. Honesty, transparency. I, I 
do believe in really good communication. I think that's one of the biggest problems we have in, in our personal and professional lives sometimes is we don't communicate enough with people. So making sure that people feel comfortable and have opportunities to, to engage and, and, and communicate with you no matter where you are in the pecking order. <laughs> so I think those things are all really important to me, making sure that everybody feels comfortable giving me their input, being a part of, of our strategies and solutions. And that's, that's always been motivational for me, but also has always been good for me as a, as a leader. And you were the first female chief for DC Metro? I was first chief, uh, female chief in DC police. Yes. 150 years. Wow. That must've been quite an experience. Uh, it was a little strange. It was such a shock and such a, uh, came so out of the blue for me. I was not, wasn't expecting it. The, I think the thing that really struck me the most is I had no idea just how, how much other women pay attention. So when I got named as the nominee chief, so I was a commander and Adrian Fenty, who was the incoming mayor, had just won the primary, but he had not yet taken over as mayor. He immediately said he wanted to have me as the chief. I was a 39-year-old woman in the department. It just went viral in the news. And the number of women, and I have every single one of them, the number of women that wrote me letters or sent me emails were called was really just from all over the world. It was just amazing. I'd never been part of any women's organizations or anything and shame on me. I, I realized at this point because women were so supportive when it was time for my confirmation hearing and they dragged my confirmation hearing on a, quite a bit. And then when it was finally time, it was lots of news coverage all over the, all over the world. I mean, news articles and literally coming in from all over the world. I went in for my confirmation hearing and there was a woman, uh, there was actually three women who were standing in the council chambers when I walked in and one of them walked over to me and she said, she introduced herself. She said, I'm with the national organization for women and we're here to make sure that they don't ask you any questions that are inappropriate for this hearing. And I just, I mean, I was just floored and she introduced me to the other women that came with her and they came from all across the United States just to be there to support me. And I thought, wow, you know, women are so awesome. There are so many opportunities for, for us women to look out for other women and support each other. So now I try and do as much of that as I possibly can and be as engaged as I possibly can. But that was the biggest, the biggest thing for me that caught me off guard the most when I got the chief's job. That's such a powerful story. I always make a, a point to thank the women who have come before me that made my path easier just because I never want to take them for granted and the work that they did to allow me to have an easier road. So now you are the head of security for the NFL, another male-dominated field in sports. What has that been like for you? <laughs> um, it's good. It's good. It's, uh, you know, it's a difference. You have to transition. It's a transition coming from public, uh, public service to private sector. Um, I think the, the league has made a a huge, huge push to try and make sure that women are integrated into the entire organization from top to bottom. I think they're even out in the, in the clubs across the league, you see uh, women coaches, women referees, uh, officials. So I think they've done a, done a really good job to push women up in the organizations and, and throughout. It's still a transition, but um, I, I'll be here five years now coming up in September. So I'm, I'm almost at my five-year mark. I, I really love the job. I love the people and, and uh, it's, it's a tough job. 
<laughs> I thought it was going to be a little easier than the old chief's job, but I was a little mistaken. <laughs> so what advice do you have for all the women who are coming up behind you? I mean, I think the biggest thing, and I wish somebody had said it to me sooner. And when they did finally say it to me, I wish I could have heard it sooner. That really is, there's nothing that you can't accomplish. And no matter how tough things are, if you just keep pushing through, it is all about how much work you put in. You can do anything that you want and don't be intimidated and don't hold yourself back. That's the biggest thing. I still see women do it all the time. Once you push yourself that first time through that uh, that hard move that you don't think you can do and you push yourself to that first one, you, you're addicted. You, you, you know that you can do it and you keep pushing the envelope. So just got to get yourself through that first tough transition. That's great advice. Chief, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Gina. Thank you for joining us on Lead Like a Lady. If you enjoyed this episode and are feeling inspired, please subscribe, rate, and review it on your favorite listening platform. Lead Like a Lady with Gina L. Osborne is produced and edited by Lisa Osborne. Theme music is Leading Lady by retired IRS criminal investigation attache Clarissa Balmaceda featuring Alex Castillo. Find us on social media through GinaLOsborne.com slash Lead Like a Lady. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Lead Like a Lady with Gina L. Osborne wherever you get your podcasts.